0: since the world's been turning. This podcast series is a journey through history, one guided by the lyrics of Billy Joel's song, We Didn't Start the Fire. This episode, we have a unique situation for our podcast. While we've always been blessed with amazing guests, people who are experts in their field, we're rarely given the opportunity to speak to people directly involved in the events themselves. Hence, we couldn't be more excited to share with you that for this episode, we're joined by Terence Roberts of the Little Rock Nine. Back in 1957, Terence, alongside eight other teenagers, would be the first black students to integrate into a previously white high school in the American South. Caught in the middle of a political battlefield, Terence and his schoolmates had the eyes of the entire world on them. They faced abuse from their classmates, teachers and untold numbers of locals who showed up outside the school every morning to protest. But who were the Little Rock Nine? What was it like to be there? Who could possibly answer these questions better than Terence himself? 1954 Oliver Brown is a railway welder and an assistant pastor at his local church. He is not the kind of man to make a fuss. He's also a father whose daughter is forced to walk six blocks every morning to the bus stop in order to get to school. Of course, he's not taking the city to court for poor urban planning. No, there's actually a perfectly fine elementary school down the road, one that his daughter Linda is forbidden from attending purely because she's black. While they're actually very happy with the school she ends up attending, they feel it's ludicrous she doesn't have a choice. So, alongside 12 other plaintiffs, and with the legal assistance of the NAACP, Oliver Brown takes the school board to court on the grounds that it's unconstitutional for schools to discriminate based on race. This case, Brown v. Board of Education, eventually makes it all the way to the Supreme Court, where, to the surprise of everyone, all nine of the judges rule in favour of Brown. In a moment, it becomes federal law that schools can't be segregated anymore. So now the question is, who in the American South is going to be brave enough to go through with it? While it might be written in the law, it's not going to go down easily below the Bible Belt. In an unpredictable move, one of the first groups to take a stab at it is the school board of Little Rock Central High in the town of Little Rock, Arkansas. In 1955, the superintendent... Virgil Blossom submits an integration plan to the board and it's passed unanimously. With help from the NAACP, they start asking for volunteers. Our guest, Terence Roberts, talks about when he first heard about Brown versus Board of Education.
1: Brown versus Board of Education represented the very first time in my life that I considered the law to be on my side. You see, when I was born in the year 1941, the entire country, the US, were operating under the aegis of this Supreme Court decision that had been rendered in 1896, Plessy v. Ferguson. Not that Plessy was the start of any of this, not at all, because the madness had been going on for centuries before that, but there was something about the Plessy decision that really made it apparent The court literally said to us, citizens, get it through your thick heads. We are committed to having separation of the races in this country. We will have a social hierarchy based on this law of separate but equal. That was the tagline. Now, of course, it was always separate but never quite equal, of course. But Brown v. Board of Education turned Plessy around. It was a 180-degree shift. In 1954, the court said, it is no longer constitutional to discriminate. Now, Plessy, of course, alleged that it was constitutional. And of course it had been constitutional even before that, just based on common knowledge, whether they actually believed this or not, they made it seem so. Ergo, Constitution did support the madness that was going on having to do with things racial in the country. So I was excited. I was 13 years old when it happened, 1954, I'll never forget. And I thought to myself, now here is a window open. I didn't know how or when I could get through it, but I was determined that I would. See, because even as a younger child in Little Rock, one of my first thoughts was, I need to get out of here. This place is crazy. I can be killed here. I need to escape. But as soon as I was able to move around a bit to get outside little rock i discovered there's no safe zone no little rock was prototypical of every place i could find so at that point i decided okay i need to just see what i can do with this so brown happened at a very important time in my life and i took advantage of it by seeing what course i might take i had no idea that the little rock school board would provide an opportunity but they did and i'm really thankful for that
0: no one is kidding themselves. Volunteering for this is a hard ask. You're putting a target on yourself and inviting conflict from all sides. So why would people, teenagers, volunteer for this? Terence explains.
1: Looking back at it, uh, from your perspective, that, that makes a lot of sense. But when you look at it from the perspective of the nine of us, we, we were all born there in that city in Little Rock. We grew up. With all that craziness, with all the legal discrimination and the laws that prevented us, we couldn't even go into the public library. We were barred from the public library because we were Black. So that interfered with our ability to learn. Eventually, they created something called a, a branch library for Black people, a very, very small place in a community where most Black people lived. But those things, we Took in and, and learned about, and we figured out ways to continue learning anyhow. You no, know, no matter what you do, we're still going to learn, and so it, it makes it possible. I sometimes say, for instance, that all kids in America, regardless of their racial heritage, should have the opportunity we had as black kids in that all-black setting, because the teachers and administrators, all of whom were black people, loved us, and they demonstrated that love through helping us understand the importance of education and doing whatever was humanly possible on their part to make it happen. They went the extra mile. And so with all of that, as part of our tool bag, if you will, toolkit, as we went forward, we could pull out from this accumulated experience what we needed at any given moment, you know, just reminded of what a teacher had said on this occasion or that occasion, and figure out what to do in that other situation at central how to make it all work it wasn't easy i don't want to give the impression that it was easy it was not it was very very difficult but the learning was so invaluable
0: terence isn't alone in feeling like this eight other teenagers volunteer to take part in the blossom plan to leave their schools behind and transfer to little rock central high terence gives us a description of each of his friends
1: ernie green who was the lone senior in our group was a very interesting group because there were nine of us Uh, three were males and six were females that in itself has some historical significance as you look at what's happened to black people in america and so ernie was the lone senior he and i had Known each other Well, actually, I knew all of them because in Little Rock, if you were a Black kid and you went to school, there was only one middle school and one high school for all the Black kids in Little Rock. So you either knew them personally or you knew of them having been there. But I, I personally knew all of these nine, you know, this group of nine. So, in fact, Ernie lived not too far from me and Jeff Thomas, who was the other male didn't live far away. So we, we started living in a little triangle. I don't know what that means, but there we were. At any rate, I always experienced Ernie as being a lover of life. He really enjoyed being around and he grabbed on to things. And I think that's why he was the, the only senior in the bunch because many of the kids who had been eligible, who were rising seniors or going into their senior year, said no to the opportunity because they wanted to participate in all the things that seniors took part in that was not the biggest thing for ernie he understood that this was something very different and it needed to be on his agenda and so he took it on and in terms of uh, I'll, I'll just do all the men so jeff thomas fascinating he is the only one of us who has died all eight of us remain Jeff died just about 11 years ago now. He was in the 10th grade. I was in the 11th grade. Ernie was in the 12th grade. So Jeff helped me a lot that year because his sense of humor was so keen. And that helped me to find a balance time to time. For instance, we were nonviolent. We chose to operate as nonviolent people during that episode. So we pledged not to fight back if anything happened. And then one day Jeff said to me, Terry, you know, we have pledged to turn the other cheek. But you know what? You don't have to stand right there and turn it. You can run down to the end of the hall and then turn the cheek. Oh, okay. I love that. <laughs> so, and Jeff's sense of humor was such that you, you couldn't tell when a joke was imminent. I mean, without anything, he, he wouldn't give any signal that he was about to tell a joke or say something out of the ordinary. He's springing on you just like that and you were caught. I love that about him. Sorry that he's no longer around. Then of the women, two were in the 10th grade, and the other four, five, six, yeah, other four were 11th graders. So in the 10th grade, you had uh, Gloria Ray, who was such a fireball. In fact, her parents absolutely forbid her to sign up to volunteer to be at central and she shrugged it off signed up anyway and i think since she was the youngest kid there were three in the family she was the youngest by far the youngest actually and she was the leader as it turns out she was brilliant she Is brilliant she still she lives in Sweden now but she was uh very much interested in things technical she went to a technical institute for one of her degrees and wound up at one point editing a magazine for computers and industry, that kind of technical mind. She and I actually now communicate using Marco Polo, one of these communication devices, and we make short videos for each other. The next one was Carlotta Walls at the time, currently Carlotta Lanier. Carlotta was also a very vivacious, is very vivacious person altogether, and a take charge kind of person, does not suffer fools at all. And she is actually the president of our Little Rock Nine Foundation. She's not willing to allow any of us to mess things up. So she takes charge and gets things done. And then the four females who were in the 11th grade, as I was, there was Melba Patillo at the time, now Melba Beals, Melba has, has always been a diva. In fact, i in, in never forget the description I wrote of her in the book. And it goes something like this. Even before we knew there was such a thing as a diva, even before that we knew there was a word diva, Melba was indeed a diva. And uh, she is absolutely always on, no question about it. She's suffering some physical challenges right now, but she still is really, really focused She's a writer also. She's written several books. And then uh, Minnie Jean Brown, now Minnie Jean Brown Tricky, married a Canadian and moved up to Canada shortly after this episode. Well, she went to college, that's where they met, and then uh, wound up having six children. Uh, So there's a healthy, robust clan of the Brown Trickies. I think Minnie Jean stands out because she was the only one of us who got kicked out of Central that year, 57, 58. She was. Kicked out in February of 1958 for having engaged in fighting. Now, we had all taken this vow of nonviolence, true, but at one point, Minnie Jean said, okay, that's it. And once the line was crossed, she gave up nonviolence and began to beat kids up. And the school administrator said, we're going to kick you out, expel you from school for your own safety and well being because now you're a target. That was the manifest content, but the latent content was they were really shock that she was being so successful in beating these kids up. And so they, they kicked her out. You didn't mess with Minnie Jean. That was a given. She was a real fighter. And then uh, in our group, too, was uh, Elizabeth Eckford. Elizabeth is a young woman that everybody in the world has seen because she arrived first on that fateful first day of school when we were turned away. And there's this iconic photograph taken by photographer Will Counts that showed up, well, I saw it in South Africa. I was on a trip there in a museum. There was Elizabeth on the wall with her sunglasses on and that look of determination. And behind her is a savage crowd of people yelling and screaming at her. And uh, she fared not so good psychologically during that whole year as a consequence. She's coming around now, but it took a while. There was a time when she couldn't even be in a room with more than three people. And then uh, finally, and I leave Thelma for last because her story is so in, you know, invigorating for all of us in terms of what a human being can do given adverse circumstances. Thelma Mothershed, now Thelma Mothershed where, was born with a serious heart disease. And she was something uh, that we called a blue baby at the time. This was a technical term also, a blue baby. but. She was able to, and her fashion, her family were able to find a physician in Texas who was just beginning to develop skills and working with heart patients and heart transplants and that sort of thing. She didn't have a heart transplant, but she had surgery that helped her to stay alive. She's still alive, but there was much concern about her because she was so frail, how she would fare in this hostile environment. But she was nonplussed. In fact, post central high school, she started to become a high school teacher and took a job in a city called East St. Louis, Illinois. And if you know the old adage, out of the frying pan into the fire, that's what she did. These were tough schools there in East St. Louis, but she took them on. So that in a, you know, very short answer is the Little Rock Nine. Thank you.
0: In the days leading up to the end of the summer break, Tension is building. Local white supremacist groups announce that they intend setting up a blockade outside the school in order to uphold segregation. The governor of Arkansas interrupts a broadcast of I Love Lucy on September 2nd, the day before school is set to open, announcing that in order to, quote, prevent violence that could do damage to persons and property, the National Guard would be deployed outside the school the following day, end quotes. Concerned and unsure what will happen, the Blossom Plan is delayed by a day. The white students come back to school on the 3rd as usual, while the black students wait for news of change. None comes. The call is made that they're going to attend the following day anyway. When they do... They find that it's not the white supremacists who they meet first, but the Arkansas State National Guard, who informs them that they're forbidden from entering. This call openly defies Brown versus Board of Education and therefore federal law. So who is responsible for this? Who is this governor who had the gumption to openly defy the Supreme Court?
1: You know the Governor of Arkansas, Orville Faubus, who was in office at that time, was actually a fairly new Governor during that year, but he he wound up being reelected six times, so he did serve quite a long time. He was an opportunist. he failed in an early attempt to gain the governorship because he wasn't racist enough, and he vowed never to let that happen again. So he took on this persona, and I say he took on the persona because I don't think he grew up in a situation where this was the only ideology he was exposed to. I think there was a grandfather, if I'm correct, it's a grandfather in his life who wound up on the House Un-American Activities list in this country. And you usually get on that list because you're too far left in your political thinking. And yet, uh, Faubus, as an older adult, decided he wasn't going to prosper as a politician in Arkansas if he didn't flout uh, the racist flag, and so he did. And he was outrageous with it, you know. He was sort of like a, a forerunner, this guy Donald Trump, who served for a time here, uh, just totally without principle.
0: The eyes of the world are now on Little Rock. However much he wants to, the man at the top of the chain of command can't ignore it anymore. President Dwight Eisenhower, the most powerful man on earth, will have to make a choice.
1: President Dwight Eisenhower at the time was a man of his time, so to speak. He was not at all given to thinking beyond maintaining the current status quo. So this whole thing about the Supreme Court ruling in the Brown case upset him. He'd actually chosen the Supreme Court justice or the lead justice at that time. And, but he was very, very upset that the court had ruled unanimously in this Brown decision. It took him a while to get interested in what was going on in Arkansas, because he was a, one of those guys who thought that states' rights was important, that the states had the right to do what they wanted to do and so forth. Eventually though, and I think because he was prodded by a number of very significant people in his life, not the least of which was his attorney general, a man by the name of Herbert Brownell, and uh, people who were outside government, People as uh, far away from government as Louis Armstrong, Paul Robeson, and, and many other people in the world of entertainment were speaking out loudly. Uh, Sachmo was on board. You know, I think Sachmo told Eisenhower, you got to get your act together. And, and then eventually he, he did. He sent in the 101st Airborne Division. It's very interesting. There's a televised speech where Eisenhower is, is giving his rationale for it. And he says, um, Something about, I can't remember the exact words, but it says something about an untenable situation has arisen in Little Rock. And I'm thinking, what do you mean, has arisen? It's been untenable for years. But, you know, that, that was his point. And uh, I, don't, I don't fault him for it necessarily because I see all people as being in need of growth. And that he certainly was in, in great need of growth. And I, you know, I've come to the realization living in this country that you cannot really force people to change their way of thinking. So you have to build relationships with them. And if the relationships are strong enough, you may have an opportunity over a lifetime, it seems, to get them to rethink what's going on in their minds. I've seen that happen uh, enough with people to know that it's possible. I've encountered a number of people who have grown up in households that preached a racist ideology, and they never question it, until they met Terry Roberts. And then I offer them another way of thinking and I'm willing to give them a reading list. I'm willing to sit down with them and you know go over the things after they read. So I, I think that plays a big part in the lives of many people. I wish more people would do it uh, rather than take sides and start shooting at each other because nobody is helped by that. But in any case, Eisenhower did get his act together and I applaud him for that.
0: After copious amounts of politicking from Forbus and numerous attempts to get the students inside safely, Eisenhower finally makes the call. On September the 24th, the President sends in the 101st Airborne Unit of the U.S. Army and federalizes the entire Arkansas National Guard, thereby changing their job from keeping the black students out to making sure they can get in and are kept safe while at school. With the drama of the initial days out of the way, the nine attempt to settle into a routine, but that's easier said than done. Even with help from the guards, their time at Little Rock Central is not going to be easy. Terence Roberts describes his own experiences.
1: Well, you know, it was uh, very chaotic, especially during those first weeks. Actually, we couldn't get into school for a while. We were blocked on the first day. We actually made three separate attempts to get into school, and we were successful on a third one because at that point, the army was there and the army made the pathway for us to get through the crowd. The crowd, now even with the army there, they weren't moving. They decided, no, nope, this is not going to work. You're going to have to force your way in here. And they did. A couple of people were bayoneted in the first few days, and they finally backed off a bit. Because, you know, the soldiers were instructed, get these kids into school and keep them safe. And so they could use any means necessary to make that happen. But the soldiers were not allowed to be in the classroom with us. The opposition was strong enough to force the school administrators not to allow the soldiers in classes. I don't know what the rationale was, but they couldn't go into the cafeteria. They couldn't go into the gym. They couldn't go into the bathrooms or the auditorium. So, we were vulnerable in those spaces. So, even in class, as I would sit at my desk, kids would throw things at me, usually sharpened objects. And depending upon who the teacher was, I might have some way of allowing the teacher to get involved or having the teacher get involved. But in many cases, the teacher would simply say, I didn't see anything. What are you talking about? Missiles flying across the room. She didn't see them, you know. I had an English teacher that year as an 11th grader and she was truly a piece of work. I saw her face that first day I walked in class and I realized, okay, my grade in this class is F. (laughs) I get it because the message was very clear. She hated me with vile passion and that was played out a few days later because she confronted me. She says, why do you want to come to our school? Why don't you go back to your own school? I was kind of blown away by that, but you know I was prescient enough to know that this had nothing to do with me, so I, I didn't say anything to her, I just smiled and walked off. Which, by the way, I've come to appreciate as my response to idiocy wherever I hear it. I just smile and walk off. Because he, you know this woman is supposedly a learned individual, high school English teacher, and yet she can't be civil to one of her students. Didn't make sense. But unfortunately, she was fairly typical the majority of the teachers there were unable to deal with our presence. So if you think about the entire staff, uh, faculty and administrators, you might think of them as being arrayed along a continuum, heavily weighted toward the end where they didn't really like us. A few in the middle, and then a very, very small group at the other end who were unable or unwilling to speak their truth aloud. So we heard from them in whispers or in notes, but you know, we, we took what we could get. But you know, we made it through the year, but we were pretty battered by the end. I mean, physically, psychologically, we'd been beaten up a lot. We got beaten up all the time. But uh, it wasn't enough to deter us from coming back, although I must say, honestly, I did want to quit. Oh yeah, I wanted to quit every second of every day. It was tough. And there was no guarantee that on any given day, our names would not show up on some coroner's list. And, and yet, uh, even when I got home and felt some sense of relief that the day was over, I knew another day was coming. So the best times in the world were late Friday evening because now I've got the weekend. <laughs> and the worst times were, of course, late Monday night, Sunday night, anticipating a Monday morning ordeal. But eventually I got you know, sort of used to it and I was able to manage the fear somehow which is not easy by the way for those of you who have great fear don't worry about it i mean it happens to the best of us
0: <laughs> the little rock nine quickly become a household name they are the object of global attention and anyone and everyone has an opinion about them a lot of people make an effort to make sure the nine hear it the worst of them being the hordes of protesters who continue to show up every morning and hurl abuse at the teenagers Terence talks about how other people felt about his choices.
1: Well I think I can say truthfully that the reaction was mixed in Little Rock uh, a lot of people were opposed to this change as they saw it as unnecessary and also probably a criminal in their minds the way things were going and they felt okay to be in opposition. They didn't feel like lawbreakers or people who were swimming against the tide at all. They, they felt quite uh, empowered, if you will, to be in our way. There were other people on the other side of that divide who said, no, we need to support these kids. And so we had support. Now, interestingly enough, and I get this question often, is was there divided support among black people? And of course there was because this has never been a monolithic group of people. So yes, there were black people in our neighborhood, but I understood, even as a young kid, I understood the basis for their opposition. They were in a tight spot. Many of these people had jobs working for white employers and they were vulnerable. My next door neighbor, for instance, was a black woman whose husband had died some years earlier and she literally feared that her job would be lost She confronted me one day and said, uh, why are you kids making all of this trouble? See, her vision was limited because of her own personal story. Had she been able to move outside that? But in her mind, she couldn't because it was tied up with her economics and, and that was a problem. But in the main, I think we had more support than we had opposition when you take in the worldwide community. We would often get mail delivered to us from foreign countries, from Europe from other countries around the world. With a simple address, Terry Roberts USA, it would wind up in my mailbox. I saved a lot of those, and I gave them recently to an archive so that people coming along can see for themselves what things were like. It was fascinating. And I saved some of the more interesting ones. I still have them. I haven't given them to archives yet. I will eventually, but I just enjoy looking at them sometimes. There's a telegram I pull out from time to time. Very terse. Very short, it says, uh, we will never forget what you did here, signed, a white lady. Now, I often show that to friends, and I say, now tell me, was she friend or foe? You figure it out for me.
0: (laughs) Somehow, with immense determination, the Little Rock Nine make it to the end of the school year. But with it comes a new question. What's Going to Happen in 1958? Terence explains what happened after school let out for the summer.
1: At the end of the school year, 57-58, seven of us were eligible to return. Bernie had graduated, Jean had been kicked out, and she was now in New York. So the seven of us let the governor know we would be back. We were coming back for round two. He was not happy, not at all. And all summer long, he sweated, okay, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Finally, he came up with a plan, in his mind, a brilliant plan, and that was to close down all public high schools in Little Rock. His thinking went like this if I can't keep those black kids out any other way, I can do it by closing the schools. Now, of course, when you close all the schools in Little Rock, all the public high schools, you not only keep the black kids out, you keep the white kids out too. I don't think The governor had the wherewithal to think beyond a very short space. He didn't figure that out. Um, But as I often say about governors or anybody else in public office, often uh, because politicians in our country do not have to give evidence of having a a viable IQ, they can be voted in if they have enough people who vote for them. That's a problem, extremely problematic. So I don't know uh, how the governor thought about that. Schools remained closed, by the way, for an entire year. And it took a, a virtual Supreme Court decision in another case, Cooper versus Aaron, to get those schools reopened. And not that Little Rock was the, the most egregious example of that, by the way, because there were other places in the U.S. where schools were closed for much longer and not just high schools, either. Uh, case in point, Prince Edward County, Virginia. Those schools were closed for four years consecutively. Elementary, middle schools and high schools all closed for four years. Tragic when you think about the missed opportunity for so many people over that four-year span of time.
0: Those who return to Little Rock High the following year have to do so without guards. As horrendous as the abuse had been for everyone in 1957, it would only get worse in 1959 when the eyes of the world are pulled elsewhere. Needless to say, these students, along with all of the Nine, will go on to grapple with these experiences for the rest of their lives. Terence talks about the long-term consequences of these events on the Nine themselves.
1: If you, know, if you look at the nine of us as a group and you have us arrayed along a continuum, you have some of us who were, I would say, better equipped at the start to contend with some of that crazy stuff and others not. And it played out along the way. As I mentioned, Elizabeth, who had to deal with stuff that she's still cont- contending with even today, but much better today. So it was all differential. But I think we had one thing in common, and that was we were dedicated to seeing it through, however we'd have to do it, whatever means possible, et cetera, that we had in common. Um, And I think psychologically, the same thing pertains. And some of us were better equipped in the beginning to deal with that. And I often attribute it to the DNA package I came with uh, because I can't figure out where it may have come from otherwise. But it's sort of like learning on the go. You learn, and that's another thing. At Central, I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about myself. I, I learned, for instance, something very, very unusual for most young kids. I learned that I had the capacity to kill. Now, this all happened in an episode in the PE class at Central. I was the only black kid in my class, and that's for all nine of us. We, we didn't have classes together, none of us. But I got picked on incessantly, you know, and the coach called us all together one day, and he said, you know what, fellas, I'm, I'm sick and tired of this stuff. You're sneaking up behind Roberts and you're picking on him. I think you're a bunch of cowards. Yes, you're cowards. If you weren't cowards, if you were truly men, you wouldn't sneak up on him like that. You would challenge him one-on-one, And go out on the mat and settle it now i thought to myself coach i'm not sure I'm, i'm on board with this but these kids all of them lined up to take me on at the head of the group was this one kid who was in my homeroom class we were assigned homerooms by last names so his last name started with t mine with r so we were in the rst group and he was always on my heels, doing something, pushing, shoving, biting, kicking. He was there, he was ready to rip my head off on the mat. And I looked at him and I said, Okay, kid, you're just about to try to kill me. And I'm probably going to die here. But you're going to go first. So I decided I was going to kill him. And we got on the mat and he came at me with all that he had, I sidestepped him. Got him down in a headlock, and I discovered that he had a metal chain around his neck with dog tags. And I seized that chain as a method of restricting his air supply. And like I said, I was all in because I had figured it out. I was going to die anyway. So he had to die as well, one for one. And the coach saw him turning blue and came over and said, Okay, okay, break it up, break it up, and ended the encounter. But the learning for me was impactful because I I didn't know I had the capacity to kill anybody or even think like that. And today I say, even though I know I have the capacity to kill, I choose not to. So people are safe. Everybody's safe. No problem.
0: With the nine going through all they did, it's difficult not to question if it was all worth it. Terence describes some of the positive legacies of his time at Little Rock.
1: Well, I've heard from people throughout my life who tell me that having experienced watching and listening to reports about Little Rock served as a catalyst for them to start moving in different directions. People have told me that I had this in mind, but then when I saw you kids doing what you were doing, I felt empowered to do something quite different with my life. So that's been very encouraging. And I've heard that enough to realize that this is not a small group of people. There's a number of people out there in the world who took a notion that they could be different people after watching us go through that ordeal at Little Rock. And I think that's been one of the legacies that's more lasting in, in lives of people you know, throughout the world, really. Because I bump into people around the world who say similar things. And some of those letters we used to get that just had our name and country on it, had some wonderful messages of support. And uh, I don't know, we didn't, I didn't have time to respond to all of those letters, but I think it meant that there were people out there who were watching and were impacted by what we were doing there. So that to me is one of the more powerful legacies from that time.
0: Yet one final question still stands. With Brown versus Board of Education over 50 years behind us, was it successful? Were the Little Rock Nine harbingers of change? Or were their brave efforts to integrate the high schools of the American South ultimately unsuccessful? To wrap things up, Terence talks about this and the future of America.
1: I I think, unfortunately... Uh, Because the opposition has been so severe in this country, uh, what we did at Little Rock did not have as big an impact on things in this country as it might have. Because it became a cause for people who thought that they were losing a cherished way of life and that to have these schools integrated. You see, because in this country, we still have not dealt with the whole notion of segregation. We are a segregated country, no matter how you look at it. Uh, Most white kids grow up in segregated neighborhoods in this country. Uh, That's not true for most people of color because their lives are so tenuous, they have to go wherever they can go. But most white kids wind up in segregated communities. And that's all they know, which contributes to maintaining this very, very odd status quo of people identifying and interacting with people just like themselves all the time. The experiment of America, if we look at it from a purely philosophical point of view, was to allow people from varying and sundry places to come together and form a new way of existing. We haven't yet achieved that. Uh, I don't know if we'll ever will, really. Uh, you know, out of all the countries in the world, the US is one of the few that initially started off with rhetoric that said, "We want everybody come. We'll live together, we'll figure it out." But that was only the rhetoric. The action was to maintain the social hierarchy from the beginning. When you started off enslaving people to create an economic base, that gives you a clue right there. We've never dealt with that issue either. You know, if you look at the news reports today, we're trying. You know, there's some universities that are now owning up to the fact that they made their early fortunes on the slave trade. They're beginning to donate money. I think it was either Harvard or Yale who recently announced that they were giving uh, a token amount of money. I think it was a hundred million dollars, which in this you know day and age is not that much, given the the endowment they have. But that's not the only way we can deal with this. I think we need a dialogue where people can begin to understand that the narrative that we've been told for so long is based on untruth we need a true narrative we need to understand in this country right now we have people who are declaring that it's not right to teach kids true history they're saying get rid of the history books because it's upsetting to kids to learn the truth that's a no-go situation in terms of learning Kids need to know the truth, not just kids, by the way, but adults as well.
0: Thanks for listening to Since the World's Been Turning. I'm Robin Harrison. An absolutely massive thank you to Dr. Terence Roberts for agreeing to be our guest. We recommend checking out his books, Lessons from Little Rock, and Simple Not Easy, Reflections on Community Social Responsibility and Tolerance. Both are available online. Thanks to Will McGillivray for the introduction music and to our writer, Jack McGee. Please join us again next time as we continue to explore the people, events and places behind Billy Joel's iconic song by looking into the life and work of the great Russian poet and novelist Boris Pasternak, whose work was so controversial he turned down the Nobel Prize for Literature. For more episodes and information, you can follow nzpods, that's P-O-D-Z, on Instagram and Facebook, or you can visit our website www.nzpods.com, That's nzpodz.com. Giving us reviews and ratings on your podcast service helps us share this project with more listeners, so please do share your thoughts. We greatly appreciate your help in keeping this project going. Thanks again for listening, and please come back next time to hear more from Since the World's Been Turning.